It was great just to be alive. It must have been the drugs. Still, I was 55 years old, and there was a significant question about whether or not I would live. Even if I did, there was a uniform belief that I would never walk again. My personal physician was Dr. Samuel Proger. He made a critical decision to move me to the burn center at Massachusetts General Hospital. Forty-five percent of my body had been burned away, and to cover my wounds, they had to painstakingly take live skin from other parts of my body, graft it to the rest of me, and hope it regenerated. They had no choice but to flay me. I didn't feel my burns anymore. All the nerves in those areas had been seared away. But the pain from having my skin removed from my body, strip by strip, was beyond imagining. I thought I'd rather my children be dead than have them suffer the pain I am suffering. At first, the nurses gave me morphine, but I stopped taking it. Not because I was heroic, but because I got so little benefit from it. What was the sense of risking narcotic addiction when the pain shot through the drug as if it wasn't there. I went through five operations, 60 hours in all, each involving teams of surgeons. I lay in the hospital for months. As I began my long, slow recovery, I was touched that the doctors who had taken care of me that first night at City Hospital were regular visitors at Massachusetts General. And the people who worked there were angels. Among the nurses who tenderly changed my bandages every day was an African-American woman named Dell. She was kind and friendly, and I enjoyed her company. One night, just as she was talking to me and unwrapping my bandages, she was called away, and a new nurse took her place. What happened to my friend, I asked. Her brother-in-law, I was told, had died suddenly, and she had to leave. As much pain as I was in, I had held tightly to the moments with Dell, and I missed her when she was gone. During my months of recuperation, I had to learn how to walk again. Every morning, they would literally drag me out of bed, and with a nurse on each side holding me upright, I would try to put one foot in front of the other. Usually, I simply collapsed, but as the weeks went by, my useless legs started to come back to life. One day, I was walking very slowly in slippers and a robe down the linoleum corridor when Dell suddenly appeared. I hadn't seen her in weeks. She had just experienced a family tragedy. But when she saw me, her face lit up like a beacon, and she cried, Mr. Redstone, you can walk. After months of surgery and rehabilitation, I was finally well enough to go home. I walked out of Mass General. A year or so after I recovered, I went back to tell the staff thank you. I had sued the Copley Plaza for negligence, and I donated the settlement several million dollars to the burn center. 
Now, was this ordeal a seminal event in my life? Was it some sort of cleansing fire in which I was transformed by a powerful encounter with death? Knowing how precious life is, did I grab it with more gusto than ever before? Absolutely not. Some people may want to believe that's what happened. It's convenient. It's psychologically satisfying. It's an easy hook. But I don't buy it. It's nonsense. I hadn't changed. I had the same value system after the fire that I had before. Whether in high school or college or law school or building a theater circuit, I have always been driven. I have a passion to win. And the will to win is the will to survive. And my love of family will always be the same. I remember how my wife Phyllis and my children, Charlie and Brent, would sit at my bedside until the late hours of the night, hoping they would see me alive and better the next day. I love my children. They are my best friends, both of them now intimately involved in my business and personal life. There are doctors who claim that your mental attitude will help you get through cancer. I don't know about that. But I can say with certainty that my will to win, my tenacity, had a lot to do with my recovery. The most exciting things that have happened to me in my professional life have occurred after the fire, but not because of it. It doesn't take near death to bring you to life. Life begins whenever you want it to begin. Blockbuster Tanks Viacom is me. I have a love affair with this business and this company. The global competitive struggle. The creation of the most successful books and movies and television and the creation of audiences for all of them is exhilarating. My industry reaches the hearts and minds of tremendous numbers of people, and no one matches Viacom for its effect on lives all over the world. MTV, Nickelodeon, VH1, CBS, Simon & Schuster, Paramount Pictures, Showtime, Blockbuster, Comedy Central, Nick at Night, TV Land, have far-reaching social as well as business dimensions. I love Viacom's successes, and I am stung by its failures. I enjoy being part of it every day. In 1987, when I acquired the company, I had bet my life on it, and so far, I was winning. I had a vision of creating the premier software-driven media company in the world, and in 1993, Viacom had the opportunity to acquire one of the world's premier movie studios, Paramount Pictures. However, I was locked in a titanic bidding war with Barry Diller, the chairman of QVC Networks, Inc. That bidding war was jacking up the price unconscionably. I needed cash. In order to acquire Paramount, I needed to acquire the world's leading video rental company, Blockbuster. Its cash flow was extraordinary. I was looking for another $600 million, and Blockbuster had it. We merged with Blockbuster, and after a tough fight, 
we got paramount. I put Blockbuster's founder and chairman, H. Wayne Heisinger, and its vice chairman, Stephen Barad, on the Viacom board of directors. About a year after the merger, Heisinger left Viacom and founded Republic Industries, becoming its chairman. He clearly wanted the company to run. Steve Barad, Blockbuster's chief executive officer, stayed and was placed in charge. Blockbuster was a beautiful growth story, and I relied on Steve Barad to continue Blockbuster's success. A new Blockbuster store was opening every 14 hours around the globe. 220 outside the United States, including in countries new to Blockbuster, like Colombia, Germany, and Peru. There were plans for a Blockbuster credit card, a Blockbuster move into the music retail business with the opening of a 100 Blockbuster music stores to rival Tower Records, a system for electronic downloading of both music CDs and video games at Blockbuster outlets, Discovery Zone, a playground network for kids, was already in operation. Block Party virtual reality centers were going to be the discovery zone for grown-ups. Blockbuster Park, an entertainment, sports, and retailing complex planned for Florida's Broward County, was going to compete with Disney World. The new initiative sounded great while Blockbuster was being sold to Viacom. But in each case, the people at Blockbuster were doing everything to build revenue. Revenue, however, is not profit. They were thinking of the top line, not the bottom line. The concepts were good. The execution was extremely poor. It turned out that this was Blockbuster in microcosm. They were deal guys, consolidators. Heisinger and his managers were great builders but far from excellent operators. We went to work. Among other things, we killed the plans for Blockbuster Park, shelved the plans for Block Party, and closed 50 unprofitable Blockbuster music stores. We tried to get Blockbuster back to being Blockbuster. Around this time, Heisinger called and asked me to invest in his new company, Republic Industries. I decided, despite what I was finding at his former company, that it would serve Viacom best if I maintained a decent relationship with the man. I told him I'd buy $1 million worth of Republic Industry stock. When the placement memorandum for the investment arrived, it listed other investors, and there on the list was Steve Barad, allocated something on the order of 600,000 shares. Neither Barad nor Heisinger had disclosed this relationship to us. Heisinger had left us with a leader who he said was going to stay and maintain continuity. Instead, the two men appeared to be engaged in some kind of seductive relationship, which practically compelled Barad and others to leave and for Heisinger to hire them. I felt betrayed. Barad said he was considering leaving. 
I had sat for considerable lengths of time with Philippe Domon and Tom Dooley, then my deputies, discussing our options. I was on the fence. I liked Barad. I thought he had not been given enough credit within the company for what he had accomplished at Blockbuster. But Tom and Philippe had questioned Barad's management. Philippe said, Look, let's let him move on. He's not doing the job because his mind's not there. So forget about the consequences of his leaving. He's going to leave, and if he's not going to leave, we should say goodbye anyway. The search for a replacement did not go smoothly. I asked Barad to stay until we could find one. I was looking for the preeminent man in retail, and the name I heard most often was Bill Fields. Fields was second in command at Walmart, among the largest retailers in the world, but along with his name came the phrase, you can't get this guy. So, of course, we went after the prize. Fields lived in Walmart's hometown, Bentonville, Arkansas, and eventually he came to New York to meet with me. I can't say we exactly clicked on a personal level, but he had been with Walmart almost from the beginning and was widely credited with developing the company into the giant it is. I offered Fields a job and he accepted. He seemed like God's gift to Blockbuster. We gave Fields a lot of room. By reputation, he deserved it. I think there's opportunity for great growth here, he told us, and brought in some of his former Walmart executives, whom old blockbuster hands referred to as Walmartians. He began to put in his own systems. He suggested moving corporate headquarters from Fort Lauderdale to Dallas, which was more centrally located to blockbuster stores around the country, where the labor pool was far greater and where we could build a giant distribution center. The move to Dallas was wrenching. In the end, however, the company was better off for it, and the move was ultimately successful. Yet, from the beginning, things did not go well with Fields. Walmart sold everything under the sun, and Fields began to remake Blockbuster as a concession stand. To utilize our sizable square footage of retail space, he stocked blockbuster shelves with popcorn, t-shirts, games, bubblegum, excess videos, and music we...